Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I'm in the presence of a true expert of the macabre. Kim Newman is a writer and critic who has forgotten more about horror on the page or the screen than you or I will ever know. It's actually quite fitting that his interview follows last week's chat with Mark Kermode, both because the two are firm friends, but also because Kim is often the person whom Mark consults when he needs to find out something about some obscure horror movie. That's right, Kim Newman is the person who knows more about film than the UK's foremost film critic. You may know Kim's name because of his Anno Dracula books, a usually successful and influential series that blends the fictional, the historical and the real into one big stew of pulpy goodness. It's a technique that he also adopts in his new novel, Something More Than Night. The tale takes place in 1930s Hollywood and pits two very real historical figures against some awful and at times darkly hilarious evils at the heart of the movie industry. I'll let Kim tell you more. Kim guides us through the shadowy recesses of interwar LA and pulls some of Hollywood's biggest skeletons from their closets. We also cover the perils of trying to write like Raymond Chandler, the enduring influence of Frankenstein in culture. We talk about why movie sets are like fascist dictatorships and we even get into Quentin Tarantino. You'll come away from this knowing new things, trust me. So, here we go. Off to a back lot in downtown Hollywood, where it's hard to tell the movie monsters from the real. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Kim, and welcome to Talking Scared. Hello, I'm very glad to be here. It's a delight to have you. Um, Where are you speaking to us from today? I'm speaking to you uh, from my flat in London, um, from my front room. Excellent. Okay. I've worked from home all my life, (laughs) so the last couple of years haven't been anything special for me in that way. Well, indeed. I mean, I've just started work from home because of the last few years. But, but yeah, I was reading your um, your bio on your website, and you say you you've never had a a proper job. I suppose I've done things which are tangential to being a writer. I mean, broadcasting is one thing, but it's all, but fundamentally, I've always been a writer. Um, that's that's always how I've earned my, earned my living. Um, I have no uh, huge private income or uh, a, a, a large investment portfolio to see, on, so I've, I've uh, had to get by 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 my words. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I've done so many different things is in order to make a living, you have to diversify. But I've diversified within um, being a writer. I've written lots of different types of things, fiction and nonfiction. Um, but I don't just do that for uh, income reasons. I do that because I like to do new things. I think uh, every couple of years I like to find something I've not done before and give it a go. Well, indeed, you have done a lot of different things. Um, it's a weird thing, this show, in that I'm British, you're British, and a lot of my listeners are American. So I, I know from my, my Twitter conversations that you are 
very well known in America for being the author of Anno Dracula and and other things like that. But I, I think a lot of my American listeners may not know quite how prominent you sit uh, in the horror community over here in, in Britain, at least. You are sort of the critic of note when it comes to, to horror fiction of all kinds. I mean, off air, I, I just saw your bookshelves behind you and they are a thing to behold. They're like something of an M.R. James story. I have to say, from where you are, the bookshelves you see behind me are literally my bookshelves. Those are the, the shelves where my books are. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> why they're overflowing, because there's a lot of foreign editions and stuff in there as well. But yeah, um, I have a lot more books that do not appear on, in, the, in the range of the webcam, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, like many people I know, I'm on the point of being uh, crushed in my own home by the weight of um, of books and Blu-rays and comics and music uh, and general clutter. Uh, I always think of it as a working library. I do need it. I do use it. But it takes up a lot of space. How do you feel about digitization? Because I know I know it's a, these days we should be on board with digitization because of ethical, you know, climate reasons and, and, and production and all that. But I, I miss the idea of having all of my media around me. I do too. Also, it, um, there are things about ease of access and uh, uh, there are various other issues to do with digitization, uh, which is partly, you know, um, I don't really trust it. <laughs> yeah, in, in, in some ways. The thing about um, a, a book is like a 1,500-year-old machine for conveying stuff that various more sophisticated gadgets don't do quite as well. Yeah, we, we've never quite topped it, have we? No. I'd, I'd, and there are all kinds of uh, reasons for uh, sticking with them, I think. Uh, I mean, there are various things that I've got. Uh, I Reluctantly, I suppose, I do now have a couple of flash drives uh, or external hard drives, which are full of uh, visual material that I don't have uh, room to have any other way. Um, I have enough, <laughs> you know, um, uh, uh, Blu-rays and DVDs sort of stacked up. Um, and and finding the one I particularly need to see sometimes can be a challenge. Well, let's talk about um, one book in particular, which is your new novel, Something More Than Night, which I believe is out from Titan Books on November 13th. Um, about then. I think the date changes. I think November 2nd was the last time I heard it, but it'll be in, in shop. I'm sure it'll arrive from your online um bookshops and it'll be in regular bookshops at some point in november okay well i mean as i should explain we're, we're having this conversation well in advance of the episode being released it's still september right now and this won't go out until early november so so by then um the undead may have risen the water wars may have begun um let's just hope for the best though that my listeners are at least listening safe in their bunkers <laughs> that's the book it's a very very you piece of work Kim and I say that not as someone who knows you personally but as someone who is aware of you as your particular credentials and expertise um it, it's a book that's mired in the history of, of film and, and literature so can you tell us before we go any further what we need to know to have a conversation about something more than night um well the book is about two um Two real people who probably 
uh, met briefly, but did not have a relationship, though, in my novel, uh, They're Close Friends. Um, Raymond Chandler, the crime writer, who was born in America, but brought up in Britain. And uh, Boris Karloff, uh, uh, William Pratt, the um, famous actor known for horror roles, who was British, but emigrated to Canada and then to Hollywood. The, the reason that they stuck together as a couple, in my mind, is that as teenagers, uh, they both lived in Dulwich in London. Um, Chandler attended the very famous Dulwich College, which many other writers went to. Dennis Wheatley and P.G. Woodhouse also went to, to Dulwich College. Um, Boris Karloff, um, or Billy Pratt, as he then was, went to Uppingham, but uh, he lived in Dulwich. It's possible that they would have played cricket uh, on inter-school matches as teenagers. They were both on the cricket teams of their schools. Um, and, of course, in the 1930s, they both lived in uh, Hollywood. Um, and there are various things that connect them. I, I wanted to write a book that was about two different genres that I have a great deal of affection for. Um, the classic monster movie, The Monster Story, uh, as represented by Boris Karloff, who starred in Frankenstein, which made him, I think, probably still the greatest horror star, the greatest name in horror films. And um, for want of a better expression, film noir, hard-boiled crime, as represented by Raymond Chandler, who wrote the Philip Marlowe novel. Uh, from The Big Sleep to The Long Goodbye. There's playback as well, but we're less fond of that, um, which still very readable and, and, and fascinating uh, pieces of work and inspired uh, a run of really interesting film adaptations as well. The figure of the hard-boiled detective who's also uh, rather wistful and romantic and courtly is very Raymond Chandler. So these two characters come together in, in 30s LA and a horrific and whimsical series of escapades ensue. As I've already said, you know, you're someone known for this encyclopedic knowledge of horror cinema and genre fiction. And I have the idea that you could and, and probably would set a horror story in any era of filmmaking. So I suppose, to start off, what drew you to the where and the when of this novel? Well, partly it's, I had this notion, and it, it, it's that I wanted Raymond Chandler and Boris Karloff to essentially be um, Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes, the narrator who was also a chronicler and the genius detective. Um, Karloff actually played Sherlock Holmes. Um, in, in a live television show in the, in the 1950s. Um, and, and he has a certain affect of brilliance. And then, having decided that I wanted to do that, I, did, I, I had a sort of window between 1931 and about 1950, when it was possible. Yeah. Um, and then I just looked at their biographies and tried to find a gap uh, and and a, an interesting period in both their lives, but also a gap when it's conceivable they could have had an adventure. And so obviously that rec that ruled out. There was a whole 
chunk of the early 1940s when Boris Karloff was in New York appearing on stage in Arsenic and Old Lace. So it had to be before then. I ended up picking a point um, after Raymond Chandler had written his first novel, The Big Sleep, but before it was published for the main section of the action. Um, I, I wanted the contrast of, of two people, one of whom was very famous and one of whom wasn't. Chandler was probably became a famous writer, but he was still not somebody anybody would recognize if you saw him in the street. Most writers, nobody knows what they look like. And I wanted that to be part of the dynamic of their relationship. Also, just a bit before World War II uh, or before America entered the war uh, was an interesting period in Hollywood. Um, I wanted something that was relatively close to um, the great days of the universal horror movie, the, uh, the, the days of the Frankensteins and the Draculas uh, and the mummy. Um, I wanted that period. So I ended up, and it's one of those that doesn't tell you what year it's set. So I've got like an 18 month window when it could be. Um, and there were very practical reasons for that. But once I seized on that, I looked around for other stuff that was happening that became part of the story. Well, we'll get back to your interlacing of fact and fiction, because that's something that's particularly fascinating to me. Um, sticking with the era for a moment, I'm by no means an expert on, on horror of the 30s and 40s, or indeed in the wider culture of the era. But it seems to me that America in those decades was, as you say, quite an interesting place. And there seems to be plenty of overlap with recent political upheaval and how do I put this? Notably, Something More Than Night features a insecure man-baby villain with fascist ideals and these unthinking, almost zombified supporters. And I wondered if it's too cheesy of me to ask where that particular idea came from. Um, not necessarily. That, obviously, that parallel came up. But, but then again, that same parallel is true of, of my novel Anno Dracula. Uh, and I, I wrote that in 1991. Yeah, um, but so you project on that. Um, it may well be more to do with that. The character in my novel is is the, the head of a Hollywood studio. It may be that it's part of the psychology of of, of Donald Trump. Let's face it, that's who we mean. Um, that he, as president, acted as if he was running a movie studio rather than if he was running a country, mm -hmm. um, and so as a type. Um, yeah, certainly there are elements of Trump in that character, but there are elements of a lot of other Hollywood characters, certainly studio heads. And, I, and I've read up a lot on Carl Lemley Jr. and Sr., um, uh, Louis B. Mayer, the Warner Brothers, Harry Cohn. Uh, I mean... It was said that at the time, the nearest you could get to fascism in America was the way Harry Cohn ran Colombia, um, in that he modelled his desk on Mussolini. Um, <laughs> even Walt Disney, uh, who was apparently the only person in America who considered giving Leni Riefenstahl a job, uh, the, the great Nazi filmmaker, um, that element is part. And, and I think it, it, it does to treat uh, Trump not as a, a uniquely strange and unusual character, but as somebody who is typical of his type. And, of course, 
yeah, one of the one of the things about this this book is that it includes people who are genuine, real people. You can look them up. They they existed. They had lives. Um, there's an enormous amount of documentation on both Raymond Chandler and Boris Karloff. Karloff's slightly more elusive than Chandler. There have been more biographies of Chandler, and because he was a writer, he wrote stuff down. Karloff is actually a rather more mysterious figure. I think he may well have deliberately obscured certain aspects of his life in an interesting way that feeds into the, the fiction. It, it, um, to, to, to name drop, uh, I once had a conversation with Sir Christopher Lee about Boris Karloff, who uh, was his neighbour, but also was somebody who, who Christopher Lee genuinely revered and admired as an actor. And what Lee told me was that every time somebody wrote a biography of Boris Karloff, they discovered another wife nobody had heard of. Um, <laughs> so I put that in the book. I think that's a rather a lovely notion. And you can sort of see it in, in, in many of his films. But yeah, so I... I decided to write about real people, and that means that you owe them a debt. But the characters who appear in my book are fictional. My Raymond Chandler, who is the narrator of the book, and my Billy Pratt are my characters. They aren't the real people. They're not even biographical people. They are fantastical, imagined versions of real people uh, who I have imbued with um, other characteristics. I've, I've made some guesses about things that biographers wouldn't be able to do. Um, I think, for instance, that Raymond Chandler was suffering from PTSD after his First World War experiences. But nobody diagnosed that then. And people just tended to say he was a drunk. But I do think that his war experiences, which he didn't talk that much about, profoundly changed who he was and affected the rest of his life. And that becomes part of the the story. But as I say, having these two real people who are central to the story, I decided, although a couple of other real people pass through and quite a lot of real people are mentioned, almost everybody else who's important in the story is made up. Yeah, I was quite disappointed to find out that Joe, um, I know he is a, a kind of avatar of a real person, but he's he's such a cool character. I want him to exist as he was. <laughs> He did kind of exist. He was a man called uh, Leslie White. Uh, I have to say, uh, for people who haven't read the book, in 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 which is all of you, right? At this, uh, the, uh, on first broadcast, um, there's this character um, Joe, uh, who uh, Joe Devlin uh, or Johannes Stephenbach, who in the novel is, as it were, the third man in the investigative team, and he is supposed to be the inspiration for the character of Philip Marlowe. So he's a, a hard-boiled private eye, um, and he has other aspects of himself. It's possible, and it seems quite likely to me, that Chandler based quite a lot of Philip Marlowe on this guy, Leslie White, who was an investigator for the district attorney's office in Los Angeles, who aspired for insubordination, which is something that Philip Marlowe talks about when he's first introduced, he has the same backstory as this guy. And in a later Chandler novel, The High Window, there's a long discussion of a particular murder case, um, which remains sort of 
controversial and it's an unsolved mystery basically as to who killed who two people died and there is a um it is a, in a murder suicide and nobody quite knows which one was the murderer and and then committed suicide but anyway that leslie white seems to have been dismissed from the da's office up over this and then he became a pulp writer and he wrote um uh, yeah, pulp stories which aren't as good as Raymond Chandler's. But significantly, he um, he worked for the movies and he wrote a screen treatment which became a Boris Karloff movie, um, The Man They Couldn't Hang. Uh, so I've used quite a bit of Leslie White's biography, uh, including some of the most outrageous bits. Um, I had to drop stuff about lion taming because it just seemed too silly. Um, but that's in Leslie White's um, biography. It lists uh, uh, some amazing stuff he did, um, uh, but uh, he, uh, I, I think, in real life, was a little less colourful than uh, than Joe is in in my book. Um, and maybe towards the, uh, the the waiting show, his life wasn't quite as dark. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he is essentially a he's a fictional character, but there is a precedent for him. He's not based on somebody. There's a lot of Leslie White's biography in the book. But as far as I know, there's none of his character because I literally know nothing about who he was. The, the one person we do know a lot about is, as you say, Raymond Chandler. And anyone who takes Raymond Chandler as their narrator, for me, kind of accepts the unenviable task of, of finding his very particular voice because he was known for his wit and his, his kind of razor-sharp figurative language. Yeah, I wish I had taken a photograph of the face of my editor, Kath Treckman at, at, at Titan, when I told her. I mean, she knew what the book was about, but there was a point where I told her, oh, and it's going to be a first-person book narrated by Raymond Chandler. And there was a look on her face that, um, I, you know, I, I, I think that, that there was probably a sense that she appreciated that there was a level of arrogance to this. However, I, I will justify this. Chandler, in his novels, was extraordinarily meticulous. He rewrote, he wrote very slowly. All those hard-boiled remarks and wisecracks and, and the, the famous complicated metaphors, he tried out many different variations of them. He wrote, you know, he collected them in notebooks. He had all kinds of things he was going to do and didn't, and, and he wrote and rewrote and rewrote and polished and polished and polished to a degree that I couldn't hope to match. However, he also was a voluminous correspondent. He wrote lots and lots of letters. In fact, he didn't write the letters, he dictated them. And so my rationale for being able to uh, uh, use Chandler's voice was that this was one of those. This is him staying up all night with a dictaphone um, and probably uh, gimlets he drank. And, yeah, a, a large picture of, of those telling this story um, extemporizing. So there are some moments in it, as there are in his correspondence, which are like his novel. And it also his novels are written in the voice of Philip Marlowe, who is not Raymond Chandler. Mm -hmm. um, Chandler, although American, um, was raised in Britain. He grew to adulthood in Britain. He started his writing career in Britain. Um, a lot of people in America thought he was English. 
Um, although the one recording of his voice doesn't sound particularly English to me, but a lot of people thought he was British. He said that he had to learn American as a second language. And so he um, collected slang. He collected all the uh, the vocabulary that he uses as Philip Marlowe. Very, very occasionally he lets slip an English expression that Philip Marlowe wouldn't use. It gets through the, the editors. Yeah, there are, there are a couple of trousers rather than pants and a couple of lifts rather than elevates, that kind of thing. Um, so that's there. But in his correspondence, it's a different voice. It's a more British voice. I have written sort of pastiche Philip Marlowe occasionally. I wrote a story called The Big Germ Fish, which was an H.P. Lovecraft pastiche done in a, as a Philip Marlowe voice. And there's a section of one of the Anno Dracula books, which is a Philip Marlowe narration. And it's a fun style to do, but I decided not to do too much of that with this. There's there are there are touches and I put in a few things which are like rough drafts of stuff that turns up in later Chandler novels, but also in bits. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for Double Indemnity and I put in a, 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 a little uh, exchange with uh, a surprisingly erudite detective, um, which I, is sort of. It, it's, a dis it's a discussion of types of suicide, according to a 19th century French sociologist. And in Double Indemnity, Edward G. Robinson has a speech which is very like that. Um, and so I sort of suggest that there's a link there. You were quite humble there about your, um, your mimicry of him. I think you do exceptionally well. I mean, reading this book and then preparing this interview, I went down a, a rabbit hole of, of famous Raymond Chandler quotes. I mean, they are just, I still maintain to this day, the greatest metaphor ever written in the English language is when something was described as, as dark as a cargoed of assholes. <laughs> but, but then there's a line, for example, in your book that made me laugh out loud when you, you're talking about, about Joe Devlin and you say that being off the city payroll, he had lost his spot on the unofficial register of Los Angelinos. It wasn't safe to knife in the kidneys. <laughs> so I imagine it's a lot of fun to write that stuff, but, but a lot of pressure. Yeah, I very much enjoy the process of writing. It's almost, it is... It's why we do. This. I know some writers who complain about it all the time. Who, yeah, and and to be fair, yeah, you do get a bad back and all this kind of stuff. But the actual just sitting there playing with the rose. It's not even the process of writing. It's the process of rewriting, like Chandler. Yeah, it's just doing that kind of stuff. And yeah, I, and I. One good thing about this is I wrote this book in lockdown, and for most of lockdown, I was living alone. I think it would have been unbearable living with Raymond Chandler and me channeling Raymond Chandler, um, although I didn't become an alcoholic. <laughs> um, I think me channeling Raymond Chandler 24 hours a day would have taken quite a bit of putting up with. Yeah, I mean, it's a miracle um, that anybody did, in fact. <laughs> yeah. um, only his, his very strange wife managed to actually live with him. <laughs> um, and and she uh, yeah probably uh, found it a relief when he was off on a bender and bothering other people. <laughs> uh, but uh, but living with him in my head for uh, a year and a half uh, was maybe not good for my psychic health. 
And and then there's Billy or Boris or William, depending what you want to call him. Um, yeah, I went with Billy. That seemed to be what his family called him. Uh, it's it's. I, I mean, as as a British public schoolboy, he would have been called Pratt, which I thought was a bit too much. <laughs> I thought that was pushing it. I thought that would there would be too many jokes about that to, to have Ray keep calling him Pratt. So I went with Billy. I think that. Uh, yeah, it's a good way of differentiating um, yeah, William Pratt from Boris Karloff. William Pratt never officially changed his name. Um, so Boris Karloff was somebody he pretended to be. Uh, and, uh, and that's why he's a fascinating character. I mean, all actors have to pretend to be other people as well. Karloff pretended to be several things. Uh, throughout a, a career. He was the kindly uncle who was also a monster. I mean, one of his great roles was Captain Hook. Um, and he played, obviously, he plays Mr. Darling, the father, as well as Captain Hook, the monstrous pirate. And I think that's kind of who he was, really. Was this forlorn a figure, as you make him out to be? Because it, it seems in this book that his life, he, he feels weighed down. He feels marred by tragedy. Yeah, I don't think he was. Everybody who talks about him says how charming and nice and lovable and, and even tempered he was. But you dig a bit and you find that he did have a rough upbringing. One of the things is he was that uh, emerges is that he was Anglo-Indian. Um, if you see pictures of him as a schoolboy, um, he looks like he could be going on to become a Bollywood movie star. He, he's um, a, a very Asian kid. Uh, so I assume that was commented on at school. Um, so he was posh and not entirely white. Um, and as a teenager, emigrated to Canada to become a truck driver and then an actor. So I assume there must have been some bust up in, in the family about that. Again, it, there's nothing in the biographies that quite explains why. Um, obviously, that enabled me to invent stuff, which might explain what Billy and Ray were running from all their lives. That's my whole cloth. Yeah, that's, that's stuff that's just from me. Um, but there are uh, mysteries about Karloff. I say the number of wives he had. He was... Um, yeah, he was a he was a surprisingly left wing person. He was a union man in Hollywood when that was a dangerous thing to be. Uh, he was a union agitator in Hollywood. He he was a sort of shaky star as well. He was one of those people who everybody knew he was he was famous, but he was kind of replaceable. Um, so he was bounced around between studios. Uh, I think he was dissatisfied with quite a lot of his work, but he found some notable collaborators he was very fond of and uh, rose to the occasion to work with them. I mean, which in the the, the Billy we see in my book, it, 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 I, I picked a period of his life when things were about to get better for him. Uh, but of course, that's not, you, you don't want to write the book about the person who's having a good time. No, no, and he, and he certainly doesn't. I mean, so Boris's, Billy's presence in this really allows you to, to get to grips with the Frankenstein reference because that, that text is everywhere in, in your book, whether it's the original novel or the James Whale movie starring Boris Karloff or even the actual narrative of your own story. They're all iterations of Frankenstein. 
And, and I wondered, why did you make that, that text the central fulcrum of your own story? Well, it's almost impossible to avoid in culture, Frankenstein. I mean, and it was obviously, Frankenstein the movie was the thing that made Boris Karloff a star. You know, Frankenstein is a, a story that's uniquely fascinating. Uh, I think it's, it's interesting. It's a story that appeals greatly to writers and filmmakers, but I think it also appeals to scientists. It's a story about creation and the responsibilities of creation and what happens when your creation gets away from you or when you betray your creation or when it comes after you or when you lose control of something you have fermented in your own interest. There are so many ways that that story is embedded in our culture, is embedded in our daily behaviour. And, hey, I've written a series of books about Dracula. I wanted to have a go at Frankenstein as well. And, and this is my oblique shot at it. Well, there you go. It just I, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think Frankenstein is the most endlessly repurposable kind of you know, to use our own phrase, hideous progeny. You know, it's this thing that you can be applied, yeah. as you said, to pretty much any context. For want of a more critical term, I found it really cool that you found a way to tell this almost meta story about Frankenstein in all its iterations, and then also drag in this stuff around kind of quasi-eugenics and Nietzschean philosophy and Ubermensch and the, the war and Nazis. And it all weirdly made perfect sense it didn't feel crowbarred together i hope so this wasn't a, a a novel where at the beginning i knew how important that thing was going to be i knew at the beginning the relationship that was the thing that i that started me with this actually it wasn't until i started thinking about um the the things that tie hard-boiled crime and horror together that i got to frankenstein uh, and then it just kept coming up. I knew from very early on that the book was going to have to start with Ray seeing Frankenstein, the movie. And then I just realized, oh, I, because of that, I'm going to keep going back to it throughout. Um, and yeah, that it was very much a part of the, the 1930s. Um, it was certainly to do with fascism but it was also to do with uh, you know the rise of the machine industrialization uh yeah the, the sort of loss of control that people were feeling in uh, in the 1930s and and maybe to some extent even more now and i think that you know obviously when you set out to write uh, a historical novel um on one level, you're trying to write about the past, but on another level, you're addressing whatever's going on at the time you're writing. And I do feel that that yeah, I uh, um, I wanted to to touch on uh, universal themes. Mm -hmm. At some point, I, I considered calling the book Universal Horrors, but there are several other books that have used that, and I and I much preferred the Chandler quote uh, in the end. Oh, I, I actually meant to research that. Is it a quote? I didn't really know what the derivation of the title was. Yeah, it is. It's. I mean, it's. I mean, the uh, the epigraph gives you. It's to do with a description of uh, that Chandler gave of characters in hard boiled fiction. Um, uh, do that. Uh, let's see if I can actually find it. I've got it on the, the desk somewhere. <laughs> um, 
here we are. It's the characters of hard-boiled fiction lived in a world gone wrong, a world in which long before the atom bomb, civilization had created the machinery for its own destruction and was learning to use it with all the moronic delight of a gangster trying out his first machine gun. The law was something to be manipulated for profit and power. The streets were dark with something more than night. Um, that's from uh, Raymond Chandler's introduction to a collection of his short stories. Um, yeah, that's almost too... Uh, knowing what I know about the story, that quote is almost too perfect. That That's incredible. <laughs> that's what happens when you start with your epigraph. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... and yeah, and, and maybe I don't know if uh, because that had been attached to this project. I mean, I'd been thinking about this book for some years, and that passage was always at the top of the notes. So yeah, it, it is a, a kind of case that if the book's an essay, that's the question that was set. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Um, so you've mentioned that this is a in in its own way an historical novel. And as you said, there are people that populate it who existed in real life. And there are stories in there, you know, Frankenstein and stuff like that. And the presence of other stories and of real people is not a new thing in your oeuvre, Kim. I mean, it could be considered your signature move almost. Almost all of your fiction absorbs and repurposes other stories, other characters, historical events, historical figures. And I often refer to the technique when other people do it, as Forrest Gumping. But not everyone considers that a compliment the, the way, in the way that I think it is. Um, but, I mean, in a general sense, what appeals to you about that kind of storytelling? Um, I don't know. It's, it, it may well have something to do with the fact that um, I'm a critic as well as a creator. Um, in some cases, I use fiction as, a, as an extension of... Uh, uh, criticism. I've certainly I'm interested in stories. I, I yeah, and particularly in the the stories that have been retold and told over and again, and characters uh, from them, and what they might mean enduringly popular characters and stories. So yeah, I've written um, about Dracula quite often. Um, I did a book uh, about Professor Moriarty, and I did another which relates to the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, but also to a lot of other 19th century characters. Um, I have done stuff which does not take that approach. I've written contemporary novels. I've also played around with, with various different types of genre. I, I, yeah, I wrote a book called An English Ghost Story because I wanted to write a ghost story. I've written a couple of school novels because I wanted to try that as a form. And I've written some books, which are just books, you know, and, you know, just the story I made up with characters I made up. Um, but they all kind of relate, if if to nothing else, to each mm. other. Um, I do find it as a, a yeah, I even write a Choose Your Own Adventure book um, because I wanted to play with that format. I do, yeah, I've, I've and, and, and there is a, an, another um, a, a weird thing that's specific to this book. Because I'd written, not through any particular uh, need, it's just, you know, I have a bunch of ideas of what I want to write, and I talk to my publisher, and it's what's convenient and what fits into a schedule and what I'm thinking about at the moment. But I realized I'd done a run of uh, novels with historical settings. So when it came to, uh, to this book, 
I gave my publisher the choice of two books that I wanted to write. One was this with a historical setting and the other was uh, a book which I won't go into too much because I may well still want to write it, uh, which had a contemporary setting. And I'm sure they fast and, and decided back well, and in the end decided that they thought I should write this book next, um, which is probably good because I've been thinking about it for a while. And so it was about it was the time to go with it. If they had picked the other project, I would at some point have had to throw the whole thing away because the present day was not the present day that I conceived when I outlined the book. <laughs> of course, yeah. The circumstances of the last two years have been so extraordinary that any uh, story with a contemporary setting would have to deal with them. And yet that wasn't particularly wanted, what I wanted to write about at that time. And I don't think uh, we were quite ready for that. You know, you need a bit of distance from extraordinarily, extraordinary circumstances to write about. It. The last book I did in the, um, the Anno Dracula series, uh, Anno Dracula uh, Daikaiju, is set in 1999. Uh, and I thought I'd just about got enough perspective on what was happening in 1999 to write about it. I don't think I have enough perspective on what happened in 2020 to write about it yet. There are going to be a lot of very rushed out, unplanned novels about bad things happening during lockdown, I think, in the next two years. I'm not looking forward yeah. to them. There are also going to be a lot of, not so much novels, but I suspect uh, films and TV shows that just simply ignore it that just simply act as if nothing is different about the last couple of years. I mean, you see, just watch any average crime movie or action film or horror movie of the last couple of years, which notionally has a contemporary setting, and notice how they don't deal with what's been going on, except some of them do on a very deep but metaphorical level, but it's also a hindrance to, to the actual level. And this has happened before. In fact, um, yeah, looking at a lot of American films of the early 1940s, you can find an enormous number of them that take place in a contemporary setting but don't mention the war. Mm -hmm. uh, or even more so, the Spanish flu. I mean, I the, the Spanish flu has been almost oh, yeah. erased from culture in a really strange way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were there are one or two books about it, but I, it may well be because we didn't at that time have the have television uh, or even radio, the kind of mass culture that had quick turnaround. So by the time people were ready to write books about it, it was a bit later, um, and yeah, it's been swallowed up by the war in almost all historical stories about it. Um, you don't see. Uh, much mention of it. But there are instances where it's, I mean, for instance, um, Nosferatu, the first film version of Dracula made in 1922, Dracula brings, brings a plague with him and there are bodies piled high in the streets. That presumably has some relationship to a pandemic that was only recently over. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I my, my personal thought on the whole people ignoring it in stories is because it, it it's been a phenomenon that has been so vast as to be almost, I don't know, it's because it's so large and so paralysing, it's almost like we can just pick it up, hide it, start again, whereas something that's a bit more discreet, 
is is easier to put to narrativize. We, we as you say, we don't have the perspective to narrativize what's going on. It's just it's just kind of yeah. best ignored because it's like two years that didn't happen. It's almost like that myth that you know that that famous urban legend that the the dark ages didn't happen and that actually we're really in the year seventeen hundred or something like that. It feels a little like that. Like we could just say, okay, it's twenty twenty in January. Let's crack on. It's an odd, uncanny kind of dehistoricizing of the present. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm sure that interesting things will come out of it. Um, but it, but equally, I'm not sure I particularly want to write about it yet. No, that's why, you know, it, it's quite a pleasure to go and read something that is set in, in history or, or in the 30s that, as I said right at the start when I made my Trump illusion, it, it has obviously pertinent references to what's going on, so as you say, to the universal. But it, this is the, the great joy of doing a podcast about, about speculative issues. You can go off to haunted houses in strange places and ignore the present. To go back to the book, you did mention a while back that a lot of your fiction actually interconnects, regardless of you know which world you're writing about or which which characters. I think most authors do that. But um, you do it. You do it to an to the extreme. I mean, to list all the points of connection in your fiction would take an entire podcast. Yeah, and one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was say make it friendly to new mm-hmm. readers. As it were, I was. I. I mean, obviously, I've. I've spent quite a bit of time over thirty years on the Anno Dracula series, and I work hard to make sure that you can just pick up any of the books and read them in isolation and standalones. But inescapably, we're six or seven books in, um, and you know, the, to get the best out of them, you need to follow the whole thing. Um, so this time I wanted something that you could just pick up fresh. But then there were elements that I wanted to pick up from uh, some of my earlier works. There are a couple of characters who were knocking around I wanted to use. Um, actually, the, the supernatural element mostly comes from previously established works. But I create a lot of new stuff here. There are a lot of new characters, people who are uh, fresh. And, and I've got to say, one of the things that I love doing Uh, that makes writing pleasurable for me, is just making stuff up. I mean, I I decided that I was going to invent a Hollywood studio um, because I wanted the action to take place not at Universal or Columbia or Warner Brothers or any of the real studios, um, but a, a place that had elements of, of all of those. And once that happened, and I realized, oh, that means I'm going to have to make up a whole bunch of movies and movie stars and characters who have precedence in real life but aren't real. And then it, it, think about the the, very, the history of the, the family that founded the studio and all that kind of stuff, which I have to say, I could I could spend months just doing that. Yeah, I <laughs> again to to name drop. I recently did an event with Quentin Tarantino um, about his novel version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and he said the next book he's doing is going to be a non-fiction book about the character Leonardo DiCaprio plays in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Rick Dalton, and he's going to write the films of Rick Dalton like those 1970s movie star books. Um, And he described all the films that Rick Dalton had made um, and who was in them and who directed them and all that kind of stuff. And he's going to do that. And I I sort of uh, 
really appreciated that because that's the kind of thing I love doing. Yeah, it had never occurred to me that yeah, Tarantino and you have got a lot in common in the uh, in the way you you trespass from story to story and in your use of of pop culture reference. That that is a good point that I had not considered. Tarantino, I, actually, I didn't mention it to him when when we did the event together. Tarantino appears as a character in Johnny Alucard, one of the the Anno Dracula books, um, because of that. Uh, I, I suppose he's um, Reservoir Dogs appeared at about the same time my early novels did, so we've been going for about the same amount of time. Uh, and th- there are, I think, I mean, there are significant differences between us as well. But um, yeah, there are uh, elements I relate to. My books tend to get optioned rather than filmed. But I remember one of the discussions I had with with somebody who had the rights to Anno Dracula at some point is saying that the um, the soundtrack track should be like uh, an 1888 version of a Quentin Tarantino soundtrack. <laughs> Take lots of musical songs and folk tunes and merchants cries uh, and uh, Gilbert and Sullivan and, and brass band numbers and weave them together on the soundtrack. <laughs> so it would be like uh, an 1888 version of those um, pop culture collages he does. I still think that would be a really good idea. That would be an excellent idea, yeah. Oh, I would love to see a film of Anno Dracula. <laughs> yeah, it's it's under option. <laughs> yeah, uh, no news about if and when or whatever, but uh, um, certainly some somebody has the rights to the uh, the books. I, I understand why they're complicated to do. But. Finishing up now, you mentioned very briefly um, a moment ago that there are a few characters in Something More Than Night that do emerge from your previous fiction. And I want to ask about one of those, because more for my satisfaction, really, than the listeners. Sorry, listeners. Um, but there is this character, Ariadne. I know she's appeared in, in other works of yours, but they're books I haven't read. One, I believe, called Bad Dreams and one of the Diogenes Club stories. Yeah. Yeah, and she she's this really weird sort of vampiric presence who haunts Ray and Billy um, from in their previous life and in the in the present. Um, they have a history with her, and and I kept waiting for her to come fully into the light, but she just kind of haunts the fringes. Can you explain a little bit for people who may read the book and it may be their entry point? How does she fit into the story and your writing as a whole? She only appears quite briefly in Bad Dreams. Uh, where she is of the same, uh, they're called the kind, uh, a non-human race who are sort of like vampires, but are slightly more complicated than vampires. And she appears as a member of, of this race who disapproves of what the, uh, the villain of the novel is doing. I had the idea that she is, she's a monster, but she's also a muse. Um, I think my original thought about the book is that she would be the antagonist. And then I realized that 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 wouldn't work because she's as much an inspiration to the characters as she is a threat to them. And and I think that um, uh, it's not true of uh, of Boris Karloff. But Raymond Chandler was someone who was tormented by his muse. Uh, and so I decided that his muse would be an actual character. But I also realised that I didn't want to tell a story uh, about confronting this particular monster, uh, partly because I don't think she's somebody you can ever really get rid of. I, I think she's an eternal presence. 
Well, that's exactly it. I mean, that muse aspect, I just found it so thrilling, I suppose, because you imply that, for example, she inspired Ryder Haggard to write she and, and Keats and, and other artists, poets and, and madmen. And you have this lovely phrase that I actually underlined where you say that she has been here all along, sitting beside the story tree, dripping beautiful poison. I've always loved the idea of somebody transcending history. So I don't, I don't know if you've heard of like the, 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 the legend of the Comte Saint-Germain who uh, supposedly just existed throughout the centuries. I, I find that idea just endlessly fascinating. And I loved it that she was this kind of malignant Tom Joad almost appearing wherever there is terror or misery or horror. I think she's entirely a bad thing, but I think she's a dangerous thing unnecessary and a wonderful thing and i think that it maybe it's something that all uh, writers or creative people have an ambiguous feeling about what whatever it is that makes us tell the stories and yeah i literalized it it's something that looks like a person i do think a lot of uh, artists start out trying to impress a woman i mean yeah and there is, there's probably a male equivalent for uh, you know, for female artists as well, uh, yeah, that, uh, yeah, and maybe Dorian Gray fits to for uh, you know gay creatives as well. But there is this sort of yeah feeling that you want to attract attention to yourself, but maybe that's not always a good thing. Uh, yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly how I started, and it's not it's not ever really worked. <laughs> yeah. And actually, here's the, yeah, I don't think I've even men I've mentioned this in. Uh, anything before but she is one of the oldest characters in my work when i was um 12 or 13 um i wrote a horror novel and sh and she was in that um I, I i luckily i think the manuscript was lost because i suspect it would be horribly embarrassing to read these days but she was um a character in that uh, and I, as as was um, the lead character of Daikaiju and Man from the Diogenes Club, Richard Jefferson. So I, yeah, I didn't let go of these people that I created in my early teens. Um, and so there's a personal reason for me using her in this particular book, and in that particular way, because I suppose for you she has been there all uh, yeah. along. It's just a, a more literal version. Yeah. Yeah, I just I want to know more about her, so I will hopefully see her in, in some other, something else soon. Cause I, it's um... like quite often I'll find that I bring characters back just because I, I want to use them again. Yeah, there are things that I, I like about them that um, turn out to be useful for other stories, stories that they are otherwise rather remote from. Definitely. Listen, Kim, we're starting to run long, but I'm finding this really fascinating. So I'm, I'm going to plough on and, and it, it kind of assume your uh, indulgence. Feel free. Uh, a few more things, really. Um, as we've kind of covered numerous times now, the, the, the overlap of history and fiction is is ever present in this book. Um, but there's lots. I'm sure there are a million references that have whizzed over my head. Uh, and some that I'm perhaps imposing that aren't there. So, for example, when I was reading about Home House, the um, the kind of gaudy 30s mansion where this takes place, I was just imagining H.H. H. Holmes's murder mansion and stuff like that. Yeah, I did. 
I didn't actually think of that one, but I was I I was thinking of the um, there are a couple of 1930s horror movies that instead of being set in gothic places, are set in kind of art deco places. Edgar G. Olmer's The Black Cat is one of those, and there are yeah I- examples of weird Hollywood decor. The real place um, is a place called Greystone Mansion also known as the Doheny Mansion in Los Angeles. And if you've seen the movie There Will Be Blood, it's the mansion that the yeah. bowling alley is in. Uh, it's, and, and it's been used in, in a lot of movies uh, because it's, I, I, I think it's, it belongs to the city now. Um, it's been Wayne Manor in a couple of th- uh, Batman um, <laughs> things as well. Yeah, um, okay. and it was. Uh, it, it's even been uh, um, the 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 family home in the in the, the film of Dark Shadows, um, and, and actually very uh, relevantly, it's the it's the house in the Big Lebowski. Oh, okay, right. I can see the house. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and it's also the inspiration for the house that Philip Marlowe visits at the very beginning of The Big Sleep. It was the place that the um, this murder case that, that uh, Leslie White was involved in, um, the Doheny murder case, took place. So um, that's what I started with. And then I sort of decided to decorate it like a universal horror movie. So that's why it's got all the mad science stuff. <laughs> This is one of the things I loved. When, right at the start, we talked about the 30s as a setting for horror. Basically, I love horror sets in pre-war LA because it's such a perfect setting because it's full of scandal, yeah. intrigue and shadowy machinations. But, but more than that, what I love about it is just like the original gothic horror, which was itself predicated on fakery, the, the, all of these houses and these these you know buildings and this architecture it's almost a bit w- hard to discern where the set ends and reality begins and there is this kind of full gothic architecture yeah. that just provides the yeah, perfect and, backdrop yeah raymond chandler was very sniffy about the tastes of rich people um and <laughs> probably quite rightly but there is a kind of magnificence Again, I wrote this in lockdown. So what I didn't do was go to Los Angeles, right? But thanks to stuff, amazing resources on the internet, you can actually now find all kinds of um, historical pictures of LA. So uh, I fiddle a bit with the geography of the, of the town, but many of the places I actually was able to find really good visual references for. Yeah, and actually, it's one of those things. I put in a lot of detail, and then I took a lot of it out. Um, but I, I'm glad that it, yeah. it somehow being filtered through the manuscript helps. It, it gives me a sense of um, verisimilitude. Um, but I also mm-hmm. got a chance to actually look at uh, some of the places again. I have, Obviously, I've been to Los Angeles, but not recently. And what about the Bloodbath Bungalow? Is that, that, that this is to explain for listeners, this is a place where two characters spend some time hiding out that's kind of off the map. And, and you include some really alluring details about the site and this massacre. Is any of that based in reality? Because if so, I'd love to know the story. It was kind of inspired by, um, actually, a, a great 
underrated horror writer, Dennis Etchison, who wrote a collection of stories called The Dark Country, which is astonishing. Yeah. He also, he wrote the novelizations of Halloween 2 and Videodrome. But he was a, uh, a friend of mine, and uh, I, I stayed with him in L.A. many times. And he lived in a shack that happened to be on Beverly Glen Boulevard. So surrounded by multi-million dollar mansions there was if you drove past it you would think it was somewhere they kept gardening implements or something but it was kind of this hidden shack that in the end he sold for quite a lot of money presumably to somebody who just wanted to extend their driveway um, but he had this beverly hills address in um, but lived in a shed in beverly hills and so that's what i i started with for bloodbath bungalow um, then I also looked at the fact that there were, particularly in the 1930s, there were still whole stretches of Los Angeles that were undeveloped, that were uh, it, it leftovers from the Wild West. Uh, yeah, because it was a before it was a uh, a movie town, it was an oil town or a prospector's town. So people had sunk wells and and dug mines uh, in places, and there were whole. Uh, areas of scrubland uh and so i sort of wanted one of those weird interzones i also like the idea of magic or haunted places i i don't think i actually managed to refer to it in in the book but there's a really interesting it's not even a uh, a book although it's published separately it's a long essay by paul myersberg who was the uh a screenwriter who worked a lot with Nicholas Rogue called Hollywood the Haunted House. And that very much resonated with me as an image. The idea that Hollywood, it's not an old place, it's a new place, but it's haunted. It's kind of, it's fake old. Mm. It, it kind of imports its ghosts. This is kind of what I'm getting at, because if, if you go back to like the traditions of English Gothic, you've got Strawberry Hill, Horace Walpole, who wrote the first yeah. ever Gothic novel, basically built a house that was, at the time, yeah. his idea of a fake medieval house. So to us now, that house is old, but at the time it was complete fakery. And I just see that replicated in L.A. Yeah, William Beckford, who wrote Bathek, did something similar. What I find fascinating is both those people made enough money from their books in order to build, <laughs> I mean, they're like Bond villain lairs. I mean, they yeah. are, or the kind yeah. of things that rock stars would build now. Um, they're sort of magnificent but tasteless. Uh, the, and, and I alluded to the whole idea of yeah. follies, where you, like, build a ruin. Um, I, I mean, that is so on brand for Hollywood moguls. And the fact that Walpole and Beckford did it because their books had sold enough. Their fantasies resonated so much that they could afford to make them real. And I think that is kind of the the story of, of Hollywood, the story particularly of uh, the movie industry in that era, um, where, you know, you had rusting sets. I mean, even things like the, the Hollywood sign, which is an advertising sign that becomes a, a landmark. Um, and that... Already, by the late 30s, Hollywood had started mythologizing itself. Yeah, they'd already made two versions of A Star is Born. Yeah, uh, that, that it was an industry that interrogated its own legends, its own mythology, very early on in its existence. And that became 
I mean, it's a big theme in the book. It's a big theme in every everybody who writes about Hollywood. Yeah, well, speaking of of books, I mean, I've presumed on your indulgence enough now. So let me let me bring this to a close with the, the two questions I always ask at the end. Um, I always ask my guests, Kim, if they would recommend a book for my listeners and and tell us why. Ooh, um, there's always trouble there because you don't want to recommend something everybody's read, right? <laughs> you, know, you don't want to, yeah, a, a classic. You you also want to pick something that's slightly relevant to whatever it is you've done recently. Um, on this one, I'm going to recommend a book that was really important to me about the time I was starting to discover horror movies, which was in the early 70s. There's a book called Horror Movies by Carlos Clarence, also known as An Illustrated History of the Horror Film. And it's one of the first books about horror cinema. And what impressed me about it, and still impresses me about it, it was published, I think, first in the mid-1960s, um, is that it makes a story out of... Um, just a whole melange of different movies and creative artists and uh, movements in different countries and stories being invented and remade and the evolution of cinema technically and aesthetically. Um, I was really impressed by this. I mean, I now would argue with some of his individual judgments, but I can't argue with the way that he has shaped the history of a strand of cinema into a compelling narrative. Um, I tr I've tried to do that in my own nonfiction work, but I actually think that it's a book that influenced my fiction as well. And what's the book called again, Kim? Sorry. It's called Horror Movies by Carlos Clarence, also known as An Illustrated History of the Horror Film. I will put that in the show notes. My, my last question what truly scares you, Kim? I have to say I've reached the age where not that much. <laughs> um, I mean, I, and, and, and also to do with the way I write, I think I am much more spurred by anger than fear. I'm not sure that's necessarily a better thing in the long run. I tend to write about things that annoy me rather than things that terrify me. I suppose in the end, most things that um, annoy me do terrify me as well. Well, that's a, that's a, a, a nice, different answer. But I also like that area of outliving fear. That's, uh, that's quite a hopeful thing to think about. Anyway, this has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I feel like I've come away like with a bit of an education in, in all manner of things. This is the first substantial interview I've done uh, with somebody who's read the book, <laughs> this book. So, uh, oh, you've asked me uh, questions that I haven't been asked for. <laughs> yeah, because literally nobody is, is, has, uh, you're the first person to read the book and then interview me about it. So congratulations on that. Thank you. I always try and ask different questions, but this time I had a bit of an easier gig with that one then. But yeah, um, the, the book is its a strange word to use for something that is about dark things, but it's an absolute romp. And I think if anyone wants something to lighten the mood, but still keep a toe in the horror genre, something more than night is just the tonic. But Kim, all I can say is thank you for writing it and thank you for talking scared. Thank you. First of all, 
I need to clarify that publication date. Honestly, things get moved around all the time. Mapping my schedule to the publisher's schedule is getting increasingly difficult. Something More Than Night is released on November 2nd, which I believe is actually yesterday, the day before this episode goes live. So basically, if you're hearing this, the book is out there. Go get it. I called it a romp, and it really is. It's great fun, unashamedly so. Kim is playing with horror here, but he isn't really trying to frighten. This is a book that will make you laugh far more than it will make you whimper, but that's not a bad thing. In fact, I should point out, I've made a conscious decision to pair this week's episode and next week's as slightly lighter in tone than the usual. I felt like, looking back over the year, we had a lot of big, proper horror novels over the summer, and then some really dark stuff to mark October, and it seemed like a nice chance to change tack a little. So, so yeah, Something More Than Night is playful and fun and horrible, sure, but in a jolly sort of way. And next week is something much cosier still, although it does involve Nazis and pumpkin-headed demons. I hope that's okay with you guys. I always want to give you what you want, but it can't really be doom and gloom every week. Darkness needs light. Something more than night is a nice start to the winter's reading before things get all cold and bleak. If you've enjoyed these recent cinematic excursions with Kim and Mark Kamold, then I... I do recommend you get your hands on a copy of Kim's magnum opus, Nightmare Movies. It's a huge, comprehensive examination of horror cinema since the 60s. It was first published as as quite a slim volume in the 80s, but since then he's continually refreshed it, and now it, it comes in at over 600 pages. It's the definitive review of the horror film, and I can't recommend it enough for a horror fan. I wanted to follow up on one thing I mentioned in my conversation with Kim that I kind of glossed over. So when we were talking about the character of Ariadne, this vampiric presence in in a few of Kim's novels, I, I said I really enjoyed the idea of characters transcending history. And I mentioned the legend of the Comte Saint-Germain, or Count Saint-Germain, for those of us who struggled in French class. The Count was an adventurer and a philosopher who achieved prominence in in European society in the 1700s. And there are many, many strange tales about him, far too many to go into here. But it was said that he never aged, that throughout his life he always looked the same. And though people say he died at the end of the century, they say he looked just as young. And other people say that he never died that also he was never seen to eat, and that he only drank a, quote, special tea, and that he had lived for centuries and perhaps lives still. It's kind of like what people say about Keanu Reeves or a, a particularly highbrow Highlander. I'd really recommend researching the Comte Saint-Germain online. It's a blast of a story that gets the imagination firing, especially when people claim to have seen him right through the centuries and, and still do. I really enjoy that kind of stuff, this kind of almost historical urban legend, stuff going on under the surface, all these these creepy ideas that there may be a world that we, we don't know about that's happening right under our noses. I love that stuff. As ever, do get in touch. Talk Scared Pod on Twitter, Talking Scared Pod on Instagram, or you can email 
at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. More and more people get in touch. I still love it. My favourite part of this, really, after talking to my heroes, is is kind of just tweeting and, and chatting with you guys. So, yeah, please do get in touch. Patreon is there for those who want to support the show and enjoy some bonus content. I, I just put up a deep dive into my favourite book-to-film adaptations, following on from Kermode. And, and later this week, I'll start releasing my History of Horror series with Professor Roger Luckhurst. And, and that's an in-depth look at the well where all this stuff came from, from the very first gothic novel to the present day. You can find the link to Patreon in the show notes or just go direct to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and all support, as ever, is massively appreciated. I always shout out the newest subscribers, so a massive thanks to EA, aka Anne, to Katie and to Raquel Minwell. You guys are the best. Next week, as mentioned, we've got some cosy horror, but that will include some far more frightening chat about the true terrors of 80s kids TV in Britain. Until then, take your marks, learn your lines, and stop scratching the paper mache bolts in your neck. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>